Hi, I am Sean Codify. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. This is Education Rx. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. It takes all of us to turn things around. Join us. We will see you right here. All right, so what a cool intro we just got from our good friend, John Cordova. And today on this episode, we are looking at some of the social emotional impacts to students who have special needs. So that would be students, I mean, anywhere from kids who have dyslexia or ADHD to students who have really significant needs, including things like autism, Down syndrome, other medical issues. And some of those students really suffered during COVID. It was a challenge to get those kids engaged virtually. So we're going to talk about them today. Yeah, and it was really fun to talk to John since he is a student who went through it. And Sherry has some great strategies and just some little tidbits that she went through personally. So, Right. And it was really good to hear from. And Sherry Cordova is a friend of mine that I've known for ages. And she is an amazing woman who started the Rio Grande Down Syndrome Network here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, after she had her son, John. And John is a person who has Down Syndrome. And he's just amazing. I've known him ever since he was a little baby. (laughs) And he's just a cool kid. What a great foundation that she developed. I'm sure there was a really big need for it. Well, and when she was in the hospital, right after she delivered, she said there was no information about any of the medical issues or concerns you might have about a student with or a child with Downs. And she felt like, she wanted to see that change and she really wanted to lift that population up here in the state and get them more resources. So it was really a cool thing that she did. But as a parent, she's been a very cool advocate and worked really hard with the schools that John's been at to make sure that he had as much inclusion as possible and had some good insights about how it went with COVID. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk to John and Sherry. All right, so today we are here with a good friend of mine named Sherry Cordova, and she is going to tell you a little bit about herself before we have our conversation. So you're on, Sherry. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me here today. I'm really excited to talk with the two of you. As far as about me, uh, I'm a lawyer by trade. Although I retired from private practice in 2008 and now work on a part-time basis as general counsel for our family businesses, and I'm also a full-time mom of three teenage boys. So that keeps One me One of them you have right there. I do. I have my son, John. He's 16. He's the middle child, as he likes to say. Because I'm, I'm good looking. Because you're good looking. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the middle kids are always good looking. I can tell you, John, because I am also a middle child. <laughs> of course. Okay. <laughs> And Sherry, you did something pretty phenomenal right after John was born. You began a, an organization. You founded an organization in New Mexico. I did. You know, uh, after John was born, I was looking for resources and connections in the Down syndrome community because John happens to have Down syndrome. 
I did find a group of moms primarily that had kind of this loose organization where one of the ladies would do a monthly newsletter to try to connect people to Down syndrome resources. And they would have an annual holiday party where families could meet one another. As I was searching for things, what I came upon was a buddy walk that was happening in Roswell, New Mexico. And so I think John was probably one at the time. And so we traveled down to Roswell to participate in the Buddy Walk. And the Buddy Walk, if you're not familiar with it, is a walk that happens annually, typically in October, because October is Down Syndrome Awareness Month. And it's put on in conjunction with the National Down Syndrome Society to uh, raise awareness and support inclusion and acceptance of, of individuals with Down syndrome. And it also raises money for legislative initiatives and so forth that benefit people with Down syndrome. And so we traveled down to Roswell and it was just such a great experience to meet families who had you know, learned about programs and ideas and you know, just different things that would help enhance the life of John and help us sort of navigate our way through this new world that we found ourselves in. Yes. And so when I got back to Albuquerque, not long after that, it was that holiday that I spoke of. And I was talking to some of these ladies who had done really a good job, you know, connecting families. And I said, why don't we have a buddy walk in Albuquerque? And they said, well, you know, it's kind of complicated to do it with the National Down Syndrome Society. You have to be a nonprofit, this, that, and the other thing. And I said, well, I'm a lawyer. I can help make a nonprofit. And so that's really where it began. And so in 2008, I formed the Rio Grande Down Syndrome Network and, for, and sat on the, the founding board and have served on and off uh, as a board member and committee member over the years. And it has grown from, we did put on a buddy walk that first year after it was formed. And this coming year, I'm the chair of the buddy walk again. It'll be our 13th year. Wow. We do so much more now than the Buddy Walk. We have programming, educational opportunities that happen over spring break in the summer. There's tons of social activities that we do with our members. We're getting ready to launch a scholarship program. I mean, it has really grown from a little idea that we had back then to what it is now. It's really exciting. The connections that we've made and the people that we've reached through this little nonprofit. Well, and I try to go to the Buddy Walk as much as I can. I got to go this year. It was amazing. We held it over at, you guys had it at the, the football stadium near UNM and their football stadium. And it was put together so well. But I think even beyond that, one of the things that really impressed me was that you really took it upon yourself through this agency to get information into parents' hands, especially right after they had delivered in the hospital because there hadn't been that information before. And I know that as a new mom, especially a new mom that has a child that has something going on that could impact their health or their ability to thrive, that is so powerful. So I think that's an amazing thing and it has really benefited a lot of people. It is. Yeah, those connections are really what makes all the difference. And in fact, that that first group of moms, the most valuable thing that they did was do a mom's night out where moms would just get together over a meal and just be able to talk about the things they were going through, get ideas for how to handle various situations. 
find out, access people that specialize in various areas, whether it be, you know, speech or cardiac issues or all the things that that one can find themselves dealing with when they have a child, you know, with Down syndrome or any other disability or special circumstance. So helpful. Well, and one of the things you and I talked about just recently was during COVID, when we all went into quarantine, there are a lot of students that had unique needs that it was a very difficult time to learn. Share with us a little bit. Yes, it was indeed. You know, I'm very fortunate in that I work for our own businesses. And so I have the luxury of not having to punch a clock or to hold certain hours or to work strictly for eight hours with a half hour break, that kind of thing. And I appreciate that a lot of people, you know, with or without kids with special needs didn't have that luxury. And I know how challenging it was for us, even when I did have that luxury and can't imagine how difficult it was for families that had to, you know, work a full-time job while helping a child with disabilities navigate online learning. You know, we had at the, at the time that we went into complete remote learning across the state, Uh, We had three kids at home, all of whom were trying to access online learning and potentially me too, all tapping into Wi-Fi that prior to this time had never seen such a heavy load. I mean, everybody was dealing with this, right? So what we ended up doing is that the other two kids, so John has a brother that's two years younger than him and a brother that's two years older. They would stay home and do their online learning at home. And John and I would go into our office and do it there. So I had my desk and I set up a card table right next to me and I would literally roll my chair back and forth <laughs> you know, to help him, act, you know, get on, you know, log in, get online. Cause at the beginning it was all foreign, right? You know, we had never, I had never been into a Google meet session and John certainly had not, you know, he was trying to remember all of his passwords and everything. So we were creating you know, little cards with all the different passwords and printouts of the schedule and, you know, and everybody was navigating a new world. The teachers, the the special therapists, OT, speech therapists, you know, everybody was just figuring this out. And so it was very clunky <laughs> best, I think, for everybody as they tried to figure it out. And of course, everybody was doing their best in this new world that we found ourselves in. But some of what was especially challenging, I think, for kids who had, you know, various learning challenges, you know, John really couldn't do that if I wasn't right there at his side, right? So to know that we had to log in to a particular Google Classroom at 1015 for OT, he could not have done that without me being right there. And there were times because we were in an essential business, we have a construction company, where I did have work too that was going on. And so I might get caught up in a meeting or a Zoom call or, you know, a phone call or just a project I was working on and look at my watch and be, oh my gosh, we're late for PE, for home ec, whatever it was. And then we'd be logging in late and apologizing. And and so there was just this situation where really no learning could happen unless I was right there. And again, I felt so fortunate that I was right there and could help him do that. Whereas I saw... Because I had, for the first time, eyes to be able to see right into the classroom that there were other kids that didn't have that support. And so some kids just wouldn't log in. There was one little girl that had a visual impairment and her mom just, you know, the whole, actually she was living with her grandma and her grandma just 
the whole computer world was really quite foreign to her. And so she just had difficulty logging in every day and finding her way around and figuring out how do I do this? And so I found myself on the phone with her a lot, <laughs> trying to say, okay, here's what you need to do. Do you see this? Do you see that? To try to just show her how to get, to just get online, you know? And other kids where, um, you know, a mom might have three other little ones that she's trying to get to do their <laughs> elementary school studies. And she just didn't have the time to sit with, you know, her, her this, this child, you know, her child that was in John's class and she would just tune out or pretty soon she would just walk away or another kid whose mom was working full time and he was at home all by himself. I mean, I could just see into this world where if those kids didn't have somebody sitting right next to him, like for the most part, John had the luxury of, it was just really lost time for them. Yes. And I think a lot of people out in the world, like we're just all chugging away and doing our thing and trying to get through COVID and trying to get through these changes. And we don't even stop to consider how that affects people who have any kind of unique challenge, a visual challenge, a hard of hearing or deaf challenge, just not being able to navigate the systems online because it was unfamiliar how incredibly stressful and frustrating it would be for them. And for the teacher thinking, why don't you just get on the classroom? Why don't you know, where where are they? Why aren't they showing up? Not even considering just how many steps it takes to get there. Right, right. Yeah, because a lot of these parents are stressed and strapped anyway, just with everything that comes along with, you know, health challenges and things like that. And now having more difficulty accessing some of those things, it was a lot. And then of course, some of the, some of the things that are more of a challenge, even in a classroom setting were amplified when we got online working with an SLP, for example, I know that the speech language pathologist that John had was new. I can't remember now what the circumstances were, but he had a new SLP. And so learning just how he speaks. And of course, so much of communication is body language and eye contact and really getting a good visual about what someone's mouth is doing when you're trying to learn how to make your mouth and tongue and breath and everything work together to make articulable sounds. And that was just so much harder on remote learning, which I mean, just like our Zoom meeting now is so much more clear and flawless and less glitchy than what we were dealing with in the early days of COVID. All of it was, as I said, very, very clunky. You know, when somebody talks and somebody else talks, then you break up. I mean, it was just a lot of those kinds of things when you're trying to learn speech was really hard. OT, what you do. I mean, so much of that is physical manipulation and touching things. And, and you can try to explain all of that through a little you know, two by three inch screen that you're looking at your box compared to the whole screen, but it's just not quite the same, right? And you don't have those manipulatives and some of the things to work with. Now, I will say where I found the most success with the online learning was the John, John is eligible for ESY because he, we see regression in his abilities with long breaks from learning. And so, so he ESY, really quick, yeah. ESY is? Extended school year. And that's usually sort of summer school. It, right, exactly. And its purpose is not to continue growth, but just to maintain where he left off so that by the time school starts, he hasn't lost ground, right? Absolutely. And so the ESY teacher, I mean, she was just phenomenal. The things that parent, teachers tried to do to make it work, she would, at the beginning of each week, 
stop by and drop off materials. So there would be a book, there would be, you know, physical projects, things that would have to be cut, pasted together, worksheets, different things that the students could use to enhance the online learning. And that was really helpful. It really helped to keep the kids engaged. It just made it feel more like you were actually in the classroom because you were all working on the same things together. So that was really impressive. Just in terms of challenges, another one of the challenges was that, you know, you could really only have one teacher teaching at a time, whereas in the classroom, you might have a teacher working with a couple of kids and EA over here working with a couple of kids. The SLP may have pulled in to do some stuff. So you have multiple professionals working with a small group of kids. But with online learning, where you're limited to really just one person speaking at a time, it really limited the amount of teacher student time that happened. So for example, when it came to reading, of course, with kids that have special needs, they each have an IEP, which is an individualized education plan because they're all in different places in terms of their reading. So in order to teach reading in this sort of a format, in an online format, the teacher would find one book that she felt felt like everybody could handle. It might've been a little too hard for some kids. It might've been way too easy for other kids. And then she would sort of take turns and go around the screen you know, John, you know, you read this line. So John would read a line and then it would move to the next child. And it might take that child five or 10 minutes to read a line. Yes. Um, And then another, you know, so by the time you'd get around the circle back to John or back to whoever started, they're gone, they're lost. They're just, (laughs) it's hard to keep focused as we all know. I mean, we all had, a lot of us had to work in that setting and it's just, it's taxing in a totally different way, right? To try to stay focus where you don't have that ability to sort of physically engage with someone, you just lose a lot. And with kids who already have learning challenges, I just think it's amplified. Well, and even just the fact that you can't be in person to create those relationships and to have those engagements. I know John, well, his whole life. And so I would say he's definitely a person who loves to engage with others and be encouraging and give good feedback. And you can't really do that on a screen. That's right. Yeah. And one of the things I saw that was sort of interesting is that he he grew to have such a disdain for the screen interaction that even when it was something that should have been fun. So for example, the Rio Grande Down Center Network, we're trying to figure out how to do things too to engage our, our members. And so for, for New Year's Eve, we did this online dance. And so we had you know a DJ there that was playing music and people could be dancing in their living room or wherever they were. And so I told John, John, you know, the Rio Grande Down Syndrome Network is gonna have a dance this afternoon. It's for New Year's Eve, do you wanna do it? And he said, is it online? And I said, yeah, it is online because we still have this COVID that we're dealing with. He goes, nah, I'm good. Oh, <laughs> I didn't want any part of it. Even if it was to try to be social, he recognized that, no, that's not gonna fulfill me. I just don't want any part of it. And so he was, happens to be a dancing king. He is he does, such and a he's, good dancer. And he's super social too. Oh, it's my birthday. It is, yeah, almost your birthday. <laughs> it is almost, are you going to have a dance for your birthday again? It's going to be a chasing Dorito's theme party. Oh, that'll be really cool. Yeah, I just want him to 
just trapped with my mom. Yeah, Jason Derulo theme. And he's, I've been charged with trying to get Jason Derulo to show up. So, oh, that's <laughs> not hard at all. Like Jason, <laughs> if, if you're out there listening, John's birthday's coming. He'd really like to meet you. And there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Say that again, Shannon. I'm sure you've got that covered. <laughs> Working on it. Well, tell me a little bit because I know at one point you and I were talking that you were able to connect with some other parents and create a little bit of a small co-op of parents to do some learning to alleviate the virtual world issues. So where this all started is that our school district issued a what they called a re-entry plan in the fall of 2020. And what it did was, was laid out and provide guidance to the schools within the district about how they should react, what practices were recommended, depending on if the district was in a red, yellow, or a green state as far as COVID restrictions were concerned. Gotcha. And so a red state would be completely remote learning yellow would be hybrid and green would be in the classroom. And so in the fall of 2020, we were in the red zone. It was all remote learning across the board. But this, this re-entry plan provided as a highly recommended district-wide directive from the district that special education students be allowed to attend school for face-to-face -face instruction while all other students are learning remotely if possible. So the district recognized the importance of children in special education being in the classroom, understanding that that's really what they needed to get a good education. And John's teacher acknowledged that as well when I would express the frustration he was having with the process. And then, and so I asked once I saw this for an IEP meeting because a parent is allowed under the law to request an IEP meeting anytime they wanna change their child's education plan for whatever reason. And I wanted to specifically address how the school was going to take steps to follow the district directive to try to get John back into the school. And so I was provided by the school a seven step or a seven prong evaluation that it would, uh, factors that would be considered to determine whether John would qualify to come back into the school. Now the district plan itself doesn't call for these seven factors, but the school developed this to try to, I guess, reach the, the students with the highest need and get them back, give them priority to get back in the classroom. And so I went through these seven factors and I believe that John squarely met four and he only needed to meet two to get back in the classroom. And so I, I thought I made a hell of an argument as a lawyer, <laughs> an argument as a lawyer to get him back in. I thought it was an open and shut case, but the district, or it was the, the head special ed teacher and the classroom teacher that basically said no, some of the some of the issues were whether he could access remote learning. And they just said basically that John has always been able to access remote learning. Well, sure, if I'm there <laughs> signing him in, you know, so if if this had been evaluated as can John do these things independently, which is I think how they would need to evaluate it, he would have met them clearly. Again, he was fortunate that I had the flexibility, which most people don't have to be able to sit right there and, and guide him through every step of the way. 
But long story short, I lost that battle and I had asked for, you know, their decision in writing. And I had, they said I could ask for an IEP to ask for, you know, things that the district could do to better meet his needs through remote, remote learning. And I asked for all of that. And this, the process was just going so slow. And in the meantime, I had been talking, of course, with other parents of children in John's classroom and other classrooms about their frustrations with the process. And it occurred to me, it was like a light bulb went off that I was spending all of the same number of hours in remote learning as John was because I was right there. Yes. Plus, I was supplementing his learning with outside resources because I just didn't feel like he was advancing at all, let alone maintaining, because we already know that he loses ground if, if we're not constantly working with him. And I was supplementing with a private tutor. You know, poor kid, we were spending all day on educational stuff. And I thought, why am I doing this? Why am I banging my head against the wall? I'm just going to ditch the remote learning that's not working for him and just commit to teaching him directly at home in a homeschool type setting for a more reasonable school day a school day where we can go outside and play and walk in the bosky and, you know, do things to put into practice what we're learning. And so there was another child in his class who the little girl I was talking about, whose mom was always running to help the other kids do stuff. And so she and I agreed to do a homeschool co-op where I would teach two days a week and she would teach two days a week. And we felt like we got 10 times as much uh, learning done in those four days. The school was taking Fridays off in, at that time as well. And everybody was so happy. The kids were happy. They got to socialize with each other because John would go to their house when she was teaching and the other little girl would come to my house when I was teaching. So they got some of that social interaction as well. And we would, you know, we would read a story and it might have something, you know, let's say we were reading something about the gingerbread man, then we would go and we would bake, you know, gingerbread cookies and learn about measuring and, you know, following a recipe. And, you know, we just got to do, be creative and do lots of fun things at home. The kinds of things that would have been happening if they had been able to go to school, which of course nobody could do at that time. Right. And so that was the situation that worked for us. Because we recognized, you know, as our district had recognized that these kiddos really need that one-on-one -on -one interaction and the manipulation and the touching things, you know, engaging all the senses as part of their learning was just so critical for them. Well, in the district that Shannon and I were working in, we also had a directive from the district to try and get students on IEPs into the building. And I don't know, Shannon, we got quite a few. Yeah, they weren't super strict on who it was. I mean, it, it was pretty clear. I'm sure we missed some, but I feel like our district did a really good job of grabbing those kids who really couldn't gain much from virtual learning. Yeah, and, and I think some that had like, you know, medical issues that chose to stay home. I wonder if, you know, it's one of those things that hopefully this will never happen again, knock on wood. But I wonder if districts should have some kind of, or PTAs or parent associations should have some kind of option if there came a time, or even now where COVID, I mean, we've got people out in the district I work in now from COVID, and we're still having to manage some of that, despite the fact that we have vaccinations and all the good stuff. I wonder if parents could be thinking about the system that you set up and how to have resources to connect parents together 
or create something like that if that is the need for their child that has unique learning issues to help them be successful and do something that's meaningful to them. Because even if you can't, you know, drill through times tables, you could really work on a recipe where you're having to use, you know, follow the directions and a half a cup. Well, what if we want to double the recipe? What is a half a cup and a half a cup? There's math right there. So some of those practical things could really be done in a way that is, like you said, motivating because they were enjoying it. Yeah. Now I know that I opined during that time that I felt like if somebody wanted to take that on, that they would have, you know, lots of takers. I suggested to other families that they were welcome. We had one family take us up on it and, and their little boy came and it's, you know, that, that this mom and I were willing to do it. Not everybody would be willing to do that or feel like that they were equipped to be able to teach their children. I ended up a lawyer, but I actually started out wanting to be an elementary school teacher. So I, I didn't know that I already kind of had that in me and, wow. and, and, you know, I've, I've tried, I've taken on, you know, coached mock trial. And so I've always enjoyed the, the idea of teaching. And so for me, it was a lot of fun. I really loved coming up with lesson plans, what we're going to do for the week. And, you know, so I kind of geeked out. On that. But I appreciate that. Also, again, a lot of parents that had to work remotely full-time would not have the flexibility to do that. Absolutely. Um, but somebody you know, that, that had, that had the flexibility or wanted to do that could, or like this, this woman that was doing the, doing the remote tutoring, you know, she came over with those bead things for math, you know, she came over with all kinds of manipulatives. Yes, there you go. Um, That we, that we were able to work with, with her, which helped that be more successful too. And of course that was one-on-one. So that was another thing that worked about that. Yeah. And trying to put an entire classroom of kids on a screen and Shannon and I, joined in with some of our classes when they did like a Friday remote. And what we would do is create a lesson in advance. And we used a tool called Flipgrid. It's free, but you make a video and then all the students make a video back or they can send a picture back. And so then when we met online, they could each share their video if they wanted. And we would have activities like we did one where we asked them all to go out and get rocks and paint a couple rocks and then leave them in neighbor's yards or out on a walking trail just to encourage people. So finding things like that, that would be engaging, but not have to be, you know, 10 people on a Zoom. And like you said, if somebody wants to say something, it cuts off the other person and it gets a little crazy. So you really have to get creative to make this work, not just for students that are in general education, but especially for kids that have additional challenges. It's hard. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and of course, everybody was just learning it at once and some people adapted, you know, much more quickly. And for others, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the teachers were not, you know, for, uh, for, for our kids, computers are, are a first language for them. For all of us, it's a second language. We had to learn it. And there were a number of teachers, I think, that were caught being thrown into this environment that they, of course, never expected to have to do. And, you know, without the resources to be able to figure out how to do some of those really creative things. And one thing I would really be curious about is during that time, it was difficult for everyone. It was overwhelming. John was really losing interest because of the screen. It became a big turnoff to know you had to go do stuff on a screen. What other social emotional things did you see happening for him? And I ask this because... We, we've gotten some feedback. Some people aren't really understanding 
what social emotional learning is, there's been some misconceptions and different political parties are saying it's something that it's really not. When we're talking social emotional, we're talking about anxiety. We're talking about depression. We're talking about losing those classroom behavior skills of what is appropriate and what is not appropriate, how to communicate with peers and let them know when you're having a challenge with the way they're behaving, those kinds of social emotional issues. And I'm thinking for someone like John, who it's just so frustrating even to get on the computer and get connected into the right classroom and do the turn taking and waiting and waiting for someone else to struggle through reading a sentence that, that had to create a lot of emotional issues, frustration, tiredness, not wanting, not being motivated. It, it did. And they, I will say that, that our district, or at least our school or this classroom, they had time allotted in each week's learning schedule for social emotional stuff. And so they would have reading materials or activities where kids were encouraged to express how they were feeling, where they would learn about situations and be able to hear stories about other people that were maybe having difficulty with different issues, communicating, making friends, things like that, and to sort of talk through all of that. And so even in the remote learning process, I feel like there was an effort to address those issues and recognize that that was going on. And time was spent kind of at the beginning of each day, just just talking and being friends because that, you know, to just jump right in and start when these kids were had lost any kind of opportunity to interact with their peers, you know, they, they lost all of that. And so I do think that um, that, that John's teachers and school did a good job trying to address that. Um, but again, that's, it's it's obviously so much less personal in this context, but they certainly did their best, I felt like, with that, with that issue to try to address that. And you have told me before that the school that John goes to has a very strong inclusion practice. Yes. Now, at the time of, of the COVID remote learning, John was in middle school, and he has since <laughs> moved on to high school. He's a sophomore now. And the high school that he is at in particular has a reputation in our community for doing a great job with inclusion. I've talked with parents whose kids, students, whose children are now in their 30s, and that was their experience back then. So it's a really a culture that this school has developed of inclusion. And just kind of speaking about the idea of inclusion in general, which is just this idea that the federal law concerning free access to public education for children with disabilities requires that their education be take place to the fullest extent possible in a setting with their typically developing peers. Yes. So that the idea is that John would not spend all of his time out in a portable separate from typically developing kids, but that to the greatest extent possible, he would be in classrooms with typically developing peers. And what I have seen, I think that makes his high school experience so great is that he has been blessed with that kind of a learning environment. So starting with elementary school with this teacher that ended up doing the, the remote tutoring for us during COVID, he was, he was just a part of the classroom. I mean, he was, he was in the general ed classroom for most of the day there were times, especially as he got older and the gap between his performance abilities and his peers broadened, 
that he, that he got a greater learning benefit by pulling out of the classroom for maybe math and reading work at his level in, in a smaller environment with more directed learning. But then it would be right back into the classroom for, you know, everything else, whether it's, you know, eating lunch or PE or, or art or science, any kind of lessons on, you know, history or any kind of any of that kind of thing where he could sit there and listen to the stories and learn from it and do the activities with everybody else. He did that. And so from kindergarten on, those kids didn't know a world where John wasn't in it. Another thing that I did, because I understand that sometimes when kids have questions about individuals with disabilities or people that look different with that than them or talk differently or hard to understand what they speak, that a parent's first instinct might be to say, Shh, don't say that, or don't, don't, you know, try to shush them and think there's something wrong with that. And I think there's nothing at all wrong with that. Of course, they're curious. And what we need to do is just answer their questions. And so I had a tradition at his elementary school on World Down Syndrome Day, which is March 21st, 321 for trisomy 21, which is the medical diagnosis for Down syndrome of going into the school. And I would have various books, paint the octopus red is one where I would read the book to the kids. And it's about an individual with Down syndrome and how they're more alike than different. And then I would open it up for questions. And, you know, young kids might have a question like, you know, is he ever going to get better or can I catch it? I mean, those are legitimate questions that may make someone fearful of a child that's different. But when they understand that no, you know, this is, this is how John is and he can learn things just like you can to just takes him a little bit longer. We need to make sure we help him along if he's having a difficult time or that it's absolutely not contagious. You can be you can sit right next door to John and be his friend and you won't get down syndrome. You're either born with it or you're not, you know, but kids have those questions and you know what a disservice it would be to not let them ask those questions and get honest answers that would assure them that it's a perfectly fine to be John's friend and he's hilarious and he's a lot of fun and he's a great dancer and a great basketball player. You know, you know, this, this may or may not make the video, but a thing that I tell people all the time that really changed my view of John's diagnosis that I got in utero was something you said to me, Holly, oh, which is that. <laughs> going to make me cry talking about it. I probably cry every time I tell the story, but I remember this conversation. You said he is your DNA and my husband, Mark's DNA. He's going to be just like us. He's going to be athletic. He's going to be this, that, and the other thing. He just happens to have an extra chromosome, but otherwise he's you guys. He's going to be just like you guys. And I use that all the time in talking with new moms um, who have a child with some sort of a chromosomal abnormality because it, it really was the perfect way of looking at it. And so true, you know, and so now, you know, any little thing, any little quirk, it's like, I know where you get your stubbornness from. <laughs> I know, you know, whatever it is, but, but it's just this whole idea that it, it really is true that there's so much that we can relate to with kids with disabilities. I feel like the, the other kids in John's classroom benefit as much or more from him being there as he does from being with them. They learn empathy, they learn patience. They just, you know, they learn sort of an unconditional love. <laughs> they learn that it's okay to express your feelings because I know some people say, oh, you're so lucky. Kids with Down syndrome are happy all the time. 
not true. <laughs> what is true is that they really don't have a filter on their emotions. So when they're happy, you know it. But when they're upset or frustrated, you know that too, because they don't hide it. They let it out. And we can all kind of learn from that, I think. Shannon and I were talking about the benefits of inclusion that go beyond the students that have the IEPs. Oh, for sure. Without a doubt. And they also, I think, learn how to be advocates. I don't know if I've shared this story with you, but when John was in elementary school, of course, every kid that has an IEP, if they might need special assistance with transportation to school, has an option of riding a special bus, right? You're all familiar with the short bus, right? And it has negative implications with it. Well, my position is the school bus is stopping at the end of my driveway. It's picking up John's older brother and his younger brother. There's no reason John shouldn't be on that bus. He doesn't need special assistance getting on the bus, getting off the bus, sitting on the bus, behaving on the bus, any of those things. And so I just put him on the bus. I didn't ask permission to put him on the bus. I didn't, you know, I just put him on the bus. And the bus driver really did not want him on the bus. And that was very apparent to me based upon reports I was getting back from the kids. I got a call actually from a neighbor lady who said that her son, who was a fifth grade boy, and fifth grade boys aren't always the most sensitive probably to what's going on in the world as far as treatment of people. But this little boy had gone home and was quite troubled because he said the bus driver is being mean to John for no reason. And so I told my kids, well, we're just going to kill her with kindness. You know what I mean? We're just going to, you know, the next day I showed up to the bus with muffins for the bus driver and we were just going to kill her with kindness. Well, the, we had two different bus drivers. The lady that drove the bus in the morning loved having John on the bus and she would make a special point, a point of stopping right in front of our driveway so that he could get off the bus without having to cross the road. The bus schedule called for them to park to to park down the road and the kids had to walk a block or so but she would always you know and so anyway one day the other bus driver lady <laughs> was driving the nice bus driver ladies uh, shift and um we were standing in front of our driveway not down at the regular <laughs> and she stopped there and she said why is she picking him up here and i said because she's kind and is trying to do John a favor by not making him walk down the road and she's keeping him safe. Well, we have a special bus for him, she said, and I'm not trained to handle kids like him. <laughs> I tell you what, it was all I could do to bite my tongue, just not lay into her. But I was just so fired up from that situation. And um, that child who, who reported that, because I, in, in the course of the discussion said that, you know, I know what's been going on in the bus because other kids down the road have reported it to their parents who've reported it to me. John has every right to ride this bus. If there's something, if he's misbehaving, I haven't heard about it. If my other boys were misbehaving on the bus, I know I'd hear about it. And so then the story became that it was taking John too long to get off the bus. He was delaying the rest of the route. <laughs> so my instructions to anybody that was going to meet John from the bus was from the minute the bus tires stopped, we started the timer. <laughs> and it would take, you know, 20 seconds, 20 seconds, never more than 60 seconds. And I'm like, so what if it takes him 120 seconds to get off the bus? It's two minutes. It's our, it's your obligation to accommodate him and give him the least restrictive environment. And that's on your bus. <laughs> so, well, and that's, that's a world lesson for all of us living in the world that we are always going to come across people who have unique needs at every level. Some of them are highly gifted people, right? Yeah. And some of them are people who have physical disabilities. And no matter what, we're all sharing this yeah. world. 
a little patience yeah. would do us all good. That's right. And long story short for the, for the idea of inclusion and what it does is that the day that the bus driver said it takes him forever to get off the bus, all of the kids in the back of the bus stood up and said, that is a lie. Wow. And it, I mean, it was like a mini civil rights movement. And these kids, that takes courage to stand up in the face of an adult and say, that's not true. Good for them, man. That's the right way to raise our kids to stand that's inclusion. for justice. You that's, know? What inclu that's what inclusion does. It shows kids when injustice has happened. It teaches them to look out for kids that need extra help. They know these kids, they love these kids because they've been raised with these kids. So if you take these kids out and throw them in a portable, all of that is lost. So inclusion is just so, so important. And I guess that's a point too to make about remote learning is that so much of inclusion was lost yes. because we had such a, a shortened window now to teach these kids. And so the time that they had with their teachers was really just restricted almost exclusively to these exclusively special ed settings. You know, so John still had, he had PE at the time, but the PE classes are very large. And so there wasn't a lot, you know, you'd be given an assignment to do, you know, so many minutes of cardio or so many pushups or whatever, and then you'd have to report and keep a log. So that interaction was lost. Or I'm trying to think what, a, what, a, what another one of his pullouts, you know, full inclusion kind of classes would be. Oh, it's home ec. And so, you know, home ec too, you know, it's just not the same when you're not in a kitchen with other kids doing stuff together. So that's another thing that it hadn't occurred to me till this discussion was really lost through that remote learning process was any kind of inclusion really happening effectively. And I wonder, I didn't see this in our district. I wonder if any gen ed students were offered the opportunity to come into a special ed classroom for 30 minutes and just participate with them. Yeah, it didn't happen in our case, but yeah. Do you, um, have you seen any negative impacts uh, for, from inclusion, you or John? I feel like we really have been blessed. John, John can speak up for himself if somebody's being mean or unfair and, and to advocate for himself and call that out. You know, as we sit here, I'm not thinking of anything in our experience that has been bad about inclusion. <laughs> Kids have to be able to interact with even the meanies of the world. <laughs> and unless you have an inclusion setting, you're not going to learn the skills to be able to do that. You're not going to learn that that's not okay. And we need to tell a teacher, an adult or mom or dad, or a friend when somebody's doing something that isn't fair or hurts or is mean. And so if you, if you don't give kids a chance to succeed in that environment, they won't learn how to navigate those things. So to the extent that those kinds of things happened and I'm not recalling them now, it wouldn't convince me to not have inclusion. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really good point. In general, you were able to take a very challenging situation and find some solutions. And I think that's amazing. And I think a lot of parents would be inspired by that. I know, like you said, so many parents didn't have some of those options, and we've had a chance to talk with some different people who talked about how restrictive it was for some families, working families, families that had preschoolers or needed daycare, some of those issues. And I just, I hope that everyone listening knows we're all different and in different situations, and please, nobody take on any judgment 
we all just had to survive it. It was hard and it was scary and it was so much going on. And I think even teachers who maybe were older teachers or weren't tech savvy people naturally, it was a really challenging time. And one of the things we've really talked about in this particular season is that teachers really became first responders and got put into situations that they didn't really have training for because they were the person that families could see every day and connect with. And, and that's a lot. And so I think whether you were a special service provider, like an OT or speech therapist or PT, whether you were a teacher, whether you were an administrator, whether you were a parent, whether you were an educational assistant, and especially if you were a student, we got through it. That's saying something. And now we have to try and figure out how we make it better for the long term, including for opportunities where this may come again, where people have to learn remotely because of situations that come up in the world, that we would be better prepared for that. And I mean, that's really the goal is to help people get a window into what it was like for others, but never to feel judgment and always to know at the end of the day, we just want to make sure everybody has high quality support and opportunities to learn. And I think you've been an amazing advocate for John and for your other boys as well. Chad and Seth have also had great education and opportunities. So good on you. Well, thank you. Yes. And you're, and you're right. I, I don't fault anyone who found themselves in that, in that situation. I don't fault the teachers for having to try to figure it out through that. You know, that's, it, it was just, it was just the world we were in. And I do feel like everybody that we engaged with was really trying to do the best with a situation that was just so uncertain. You know, nobody understood at that time what the implications of, you know, getting together with anybody in a classroom might be. And can't fault anybody who decided that for themselves, they weren't willing to take that risk or even to, you know, engage in a homeschool setting with another family, for example, to bring them into your bubble. And so, but you're right, we've got to, we've got to at least learn and do better next time. And I think the other consideration is recognizing, as I think testing and stuff is showing now that kids did lose ground in that time. And we need to be asking ourselves, how do we sort of make it right by our kids and give them, you know, under public educate or under special education law, it contemplates some sort of rehabilitative time for the kids. And how do you make that happen? So, you know, there's still a lot of learning that's happening even now, as we are just learning about the effects that this long period of remote learning and lack of social interaction has had on our kids. Well, and we're seeing a lot of students because Shannon and I work almost exclusively in special education. We get to see the kids that have real extreme cases and even students who are in general education and have, you know, typical, if you will, learning skills, Third and fourth graders across this nation, there is a very high percentage they cannot read. Right. And it is because the age group they were in during remote learning and maybe not having access to that, maybe their family didn't have Wi Fi, maybe they didn't have a device, maybe their district didn't have access to those tools. There's so many reasons. But like you're talking about, the testing that just came back through Napier was saying that fourth and eighth grade students and then seniors, they did a randomized testing with those groups and math and English reading 
basically. And then for seniors, science, those test scores, if they drop two points, is considered significant. And right now we're seeing drops as high as 12 points, which is unheard of. Mm -hmm. And some of the information when you go through the research says in 1990, when we had the no child left behind national push for really boosting scores, we actually saw a raise in test scores. It was the largest raise we had seen in a long time. And then in the early 2000s, we kind of just sustained that. Now, post COVID, we've not only dropped, we've lost the gains we made. Right. As you bring that up, it's interesting because this particular episode is close to the end of this season. And Shannon and I have been digging around and doing research. And that may be something that we use as our concept for next season. Mm -hmm. What is it going to take to turn this thing around? Mm -hmm. Because it's not one thing and it's not one school and it's not one district or one state. Mm -hmm. We have to think on a national level. We all have to get grassroots all the way up to the national level of what are we going to do to make education different? And this season, we're really talking about the backlash and how we've lost so many educators and how students have even been lost and and schools weren't sure even how to find them or reach out and get them. And so some kids have just literally gone off the grid. Mm -hmm. These are things in a modern world you would never think could happen, but they're happening. And we need to, we all want to move on from COVID, (laughs) but we need to have that conversation so that we can then talk about, okay, here's where we're at with test scores. What are we going to do about that? Yeah, we can't just throw the kids in the classroom and pretend like COVID didn't happen because it did and it had real effects. And long-term effects. And it may take us a while, but how do we turn it around in such a way that from there, we don't experience this again. Well, thank you so much for your time, Sherry, and your personal experience and sharing that because I know so many parents can relate to that. And John, thank you for sharing with us. Of course. Well, and thank you guys for talking about these things and creating a platform where people can just um, think about it and think about how we can do better together by our kids because it's, it's important stuff. It is. It is. And sometimes these are conversations that people don't stop to have because they're not sure where to start. Oh, I can't wait. We're going to talk to Amber Main. She is one of the coolest special ed teachers we've got a chance to work with. And what I love about Amber is she has such high energy and is super creative when she is finding ways to support students with really significant needs. And she is very focused on equity. And I'm all about that. She is one of the coolest teachers, one of the coolest people I know, to be honest. She was so much fun to to have as a teacher and be in her class and kind of experience all of the things she did. And she just has a way of finding the area where a student is struggling and figuring out how to create resources to lift them up and really help them be successful. Some of the kids that we worked with with her, um, they couldn't read or write necessarily, but she had them typing out resumes and doing some amazing things. And so she's just a wealth of great ideas. So she's going to be a fun person to talk to. Yeah, I feel like engagement was her primary focus and she figured out any little way that students could engage in an activity. Let's hear what she's got to say. Let's talk to Amber. We are back at Education Rx, and uh, we've been talking about over this whole season, 
We've been talking about COVID and the social emotional impact to teachers in K-12 education, as well as students and higher education students and some of the things higher education is doing. We've also been looking at agencies or programs that are starting to really build and show ways that we can manage social emotional learning that's healthy and really supportive of educators and just changes in general we can make in education that will really support moving forward and creating some really positive trends in education. So today, Shannon, we're going to talk about special education. That's our jam. And I'm super excited because I get to see, because you're on Zoom for us, and talk to one of my favorite teachers ever that I've ever worked with. So it's it's super cool. Yeah, so Shannon and I got to work with this teacher in a district, um, a small mountain town in Colorado that shall remain nameless. But we all got to work together for several years. And Shannon and I both were super impressed with this teacher because she was highly responsive during COVID and took a group of kids that really struggled to engage in learning, especially when we had to be in quarantine. And she found ways for them to engage. And it was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. Those kids did such cool things on their COVID years. <laughs> right. And even when we were back in school um, in person or we were having to do some virtual and some in person, always, um, I feel like this teacher has been super responsive and we want to talk about special education because that's the heart of what we do. We work with these kiddos that have unique needs. And Shannon's going to say something. Clever. <laughs> clever? I'm not the clever one. <laughs> well, I think you can be clever when you want to be. <laughs> I would almost say that this teacher had our students making more progress during that COVID year than, than they had previously, than we'd seen in a long time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I saw more engagement from these significantly impacted students. And we're talking about students that are in wheelchairs, students who have significant autism spectrum disorder, students who are cognitively very low and or don't have a lot of academic skill, I have watched this teacher, and we've got other teachers we've worked with that do some pretty crazy good things too, so I don't want to minimize that, but I have definitely watched this teacher get more solid learning and progress out of these students, particularly during COVID and the back and forth with in virtual and in person. I see more progress with those kids, these special ed, significantly impaired kids, than general education a lot of times. That I think is really cool. So let's talk about that. Shannon, introduce our guest. Oh, our guest today is special education teacher, Amber Main. Tell us all about yourself, Amber. Wow, well, first of all, thank you. That was like a pretty big introduction. Like I was listening, I was like, wow, those are gonna be big shoes to fill, but. Those are my shoes. That's so weird. So thank you. <laughs> um, so my name is Amber Main. I have been teaching for six and a half years as a life skills teacher, specifically in um, secondary life skills. 
I've taught in elementary, middle school, and high school, but like I said, I specialize in middle school and high school. I've also been in the community for about 10 years, so I've been doing stuff since I was 19 in the special community. My mom was a peer professional. Actually, when she was pregnant with me, she did respite services, so I think some higher power was like, you're going to be doing this for your life. This is what you want to do. I've also been involved in behavioral therapy services in the home setting, as well as respite services inside and out the home. And currently I'm doing that right now through community connections. It's cool because you're also doing respite for students that you used to work with because your relationship's so strong with families that they have begged you to come work with their kiddos. Yeah, that's been super special. One, because I get to see them in the home and it is completely different than inside of the school setting. They are two very different settings. And I think sometimes that gets mixed up in the flow of things like parents expect what's happening at home is going to happen at school. And it's not the case. Even with the student, I've seen the student do things inside the home that I haven't seen the student do inside of school. And it, and it blows my mind. That's such an important factor for families to know that sometimes what they see and what we see are completely different. And that a lot of these students that have physical and cognitive impairments will specialize their skills to a specific location or setting if we don't really work with them to generalize. So just know that families, we see something different. And so sometimes you may know your kid can do X and we only see Y. So that is definitely true. During COVID, we spent in our very first episode, we spent a lot of time talking about how teachers became basically first responders to families because they were families connection and families were struggling with so many things and had nobody to go to with that. And so in special education, tell us what it was like having to go into quarantine with students who were so significantly impaired. So any educator will tell you this teaching through COVID was probably the most difficult year that we've all had. And it didn't matter if you were a 30 plus year teacher or if you were a first year teacher, this was new for everyone. It was one day we were in the classroom watching the news and going, oh man, are we going to live through this to now we're all in our homes talking through a computer screen like we're doing now for months on end. It, it was really scary. But for me, I got lucky in the sense that I love technology and I was excited while scared because more stakeholders could get involved in the technology world and bringing that into the life skills community. Because I think when you hear life skills and technology, you think talkers, you think iPads, you think, you know, buttons, and that's it. That's all people think of when they think technology. And that is so not true. There's so many more different things that you can use in the classroom that is really beneficial to all students regardless of level. Were you, Amber, using that technology before the shutdown? Some of it? Yes, some of it I was. Um, Specifically, news to you, I will always and forever use that program. I love that. They are amazing. And when I show it to parents who've never seen it before, they absolutely love it. And they're appreciative because there is real world stories on there. There is, you know, functional text on there. Like I could I could spend a whole other session like this talking about news to you, but yes, I was using that in the classroom before the world got crazy during COVID. Well, and it's definitely one of our plans to have a follow-up episode to this. And hopefully we're going to get to talk to news to you because they are an amazing company that works really hard at creating curriculum 
that is you can manage that for kids by making it to their skill level. And it's all geared toward kids who have special needs. So it's amazing, amazing program. Tell us about when you were in quarantine, how was this impacting you social emotional wise? Like, were you having to provide additional supports or were parents kind of knocking down your door and trying to get, you know, telling you their, their fears and they're overwhelmed and all these things. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So everyone likes to use as a teacher wearing different hats. I could have filled my closet with hats during COVID. <laughs> so many. So not only was I a teacher, I was a behavioral support virtually to students, colleagues, and parents. Parents were freaking out. They didn't know what to do in the home. They were telling me that, Amber, I am not you. And I was like, I know. Let's talk through this. Um, I had colleagues who had no experience with technology and asking, how can I do this? How can I do this? I had other colleagues who don't teach special ed going, oh my gosh, you adapt and modify this much normally? And I'm like, yeah, it, it was super interesting because I'd never had that much pressure to take care of so many people and not just my students. Obviously my students were, you know, Miss Amber, I don't like being in my house. This is really hard. I miss my friends. Like that I figured was coming, but supporting so many colleagues colleagues and parents was very hard. Also being, like you said, a first responder, watching the health concerns, monitoring like, you know, local news, seeing when we can come back every week. And then the parents messaging us going, so are we coming back? So are we coming back? And I'm like, I, I don't make the choices. I don't make the decisions. So bear with me. Yeah. It was really hard. Also trying to be a gym teacher and a special ed teacher during COVID was wild. <laughs> Take your computer and go outside and let me watch you run. Like, and they're sitting there not buying into it at all. They're like, you're not my PE teacher, Miss Amber, and you're not here. So I'm not going to do this. <laughs> Amber, what did you do to recharge yourself post-quarantine or during? Well, after quarantine, I got a new job at a new school district and that really, really helped. I am incredibly happy the school district and my team is probably one of the best I've ever worked with. I mean, if I could steal you two over there, it would, I, oh my gosh, it'd be heaven. But I did get a new job. I also started putting myself first in every aspect of my life. So professionally, personally, I put myself first and I gained so much confidence that was always there, but I was so afraid of showing it and hurting someone's feelings or doing something wrong I'm that generation that grew up that you want to do the right thing. You want to be the hard worker and you want to make everyone happy. And once I kind of let that go, that recharged my myself. I gained more confident. I was able to say no appropriately, yes appropriately. And I feel now that myself, everyone who's in my life professionally and personally have benefited from it. Nice. So we also want to talk to you a little bit about what you saw when COVID hit, tell us some of the challenges you saw with students with significant needs. Access to appropriate and individualized instruction was probably the hardest thing during COVID. There was so many hours during the day that you could hit each student. And depending on your caseload, you could be looking at anywhere between 15 to 35. Well, there's not 15 to 35 hours 
in the day to take an hour for each kid and hit their learning targets, hit their IEP goals, hit their transitional goals. There was just no way to do it. Also getting a hold of parents and students to make sure when I wasn't working with them that they were working on the things that I said that they need to work on. That was really difficult because we were, all of us were just trying to survive and we had no one to talk to but the people in our household. Or if you're lucky to have technology, talk to someone on Zoom. That was it. Working as a team with grade level teachers was really difficult. Trying to make sure that the kids were included in their non- special ed classes, that was incredibly difficult because the non-special ed teachers were trying to make curriculum that was accessible for their students, but also they were trying to worry about our students. So purposeful inclusion, just it went out the door completely. And that was really, really sad to see. What about when you were, um, when you had students that were, it was post-COVID and we came back, but you had students that were only in your room and no, not out in the general education population at all? How did that go and what did it look like? So when we came back and if students were in with me, because of the population that I teach, we are high medical means. So the common flu can knock my guys out. They can get extremely sick. So COVID, when this was going around the entire world, was extremely scary. So we were in a classroom eight hours a day, me my small group of students and two other pairs, that was it. We had no interaction with general ed students. And that was super difficult because for me, I love having what's called a peer influence in my classroom, which is a student without disabilities to come in and be a peer influence or a friend to my students with disabilities. And we couldn't do that at all. And that was really hard because I feel like if you're in the special you know, education community, all we strive for is purposeful inclusion. And it didn't happen for a whole year. And it was really hurtful. Did you think that the students in your classroom, the kids with significant needs, did you see them feeling restless or some of the things from not being able to get out into the school and with his, their gen ed peers? Oh, yeah. So the restlessness, for sure. I scheduled walks out on the track and, you know, scavenger hunts around the school, trying to get them out of that small contained space. On the flip side though, we did see a lot of growth because everything was hyper-focused on my students. So their IEP goals soared and what they needed soared. But again, that, that social component of working with other students without disabilities or just other students in general with disabilities wasn't there. We didn't feel like we we're a part of the school. Yes, we were making major games, but we just felt like our own little community behind this, you know, four walls. And it was really, it was hard because I know my students really loved being in activities or going to homecoming parades, which weren't, you know, a thing or even assemblies weren't a thing. So that was really, really hard. Do you think that your students really experienced some long-term impact from being isolated during COVID? Like when you had them back in the 21-22 school year, did you start to notice things that you were like, oh my gosh, that that is not something that would normally happen? Oh yeah. Just remembering how to be a student, just the fundamentals of coming in, saying hi, good morning, or however you communicate, nonverbal, verbal, that was lost. Following a simple routine to come just come and go places. Like I'm talking off the bus into a building. That's like the same as 
getting out of the car and going to the grocery store or getting out of the car and going to aunt's house, completely lost. Even parent-teacher communication protocols, that was interesting because we were so virtual and talking on the phone all the time to now we're in person, please respect my boundaries as a teacher was really difficult. Even social skills. When you see someone smile at you and wave, your initial reaction is to smile and wave back. That was completely lost, which was really hard for me because me as a teacher, I'm very, what a word vomit. I'm like, I'm like in your face and the kids love it. And they didn't know how to respond to that at first. Now that we're back and it's been a whole year, they're like, oh my gosh, thank goodness I get to see Miss Amber. But at first they were like, oh my gosh, this, this lady's crazy. But they were so used to being confined in a small space at home and not interacting with many people that it really took a hard hit to those social skills. We kind of already talked a little bit about technology, but would you like to add anything about the, the real successes that your students had with technology? And maybe if people thought you might not see those successes or what people thought about, you know, a severe need students learning virtually and that kind of stuff, and maybe what surprised you. And it doesn't yeah. even just have to be from COVID. It can be what yeah. you were doing before and then since, because Shannon and I have witnessed in your classroom some really cool interactions from your students interactions that we didn't think those students were capable of. Yeah. So currently and during COVID, I used multiple different platforms. Ones that I still use now that I probably, until something better comes along, that I'll always use are touchscreen applications and not just iPads, but smart boards. I have a view board right now, which is really great. Um, I had the original smart board that came like with the markers and all that get up. I had one of those. They were great, but then we updated text to speech. Google read and write is a blessing. I will always speak wonders of that program. It has helped my students, not only in my class, but in general education classes like science and social studies. So shout out to Google. You're amazing. Showing informational videos on YouTube and then just having discussions about what they're seeing and not just informational videos, but there's so many informational songs that are out there that are age appropriate, which is so hard to find. I could have a whole other discussion about age appropriate materials, but I will say <laughs> drag and drop activities. And if you don't know what that is, it is on Google Slides or PowerPoint where the students click and drag objects into certain spaces on the PowerPoint. Boom cards, again, another amazing platform I will always use. Thank you, Holly, for showing me that because <laughs> I love it at my new district. Kahoot. Oh my gosh. Kahoot is so user-friendly. I know it's been around forever, but it is amazing. Like every time I say, all right, guys, you want to play Kahoot? It's like instant rave. They start screaming and the, you know, arms go up. So Kahoot's amazing. <laughs> News to you. And then what I did was I made a lot of templates on Google slide with life skills in mind. So resumes, dollar up activities, virtual field trips, virtual job experience, virtual coffee carts, all of those things I use now in person, but I also use them online, really saved my butt because they were interactive and my students really liked them. Students that you, you know, would never think would interact, would go up to the board and start clicking all these things. And people were like, oh my God, like I never thought this student cared about technology. He's in 11th grade and we tried this at second grade. I'm like, I don't know. It works. So 
<laughs> don't be afraid to try something that didn't work in second grade and 11th grade because you never know. Well, we had a student that we've all got to work with who actually graduated this last year. I can't believe it. But I remember when your counterpart, Mr. Clark, started using a smart board and he and I got a grant to get him a smart board because we didn't have a lot of funding. And it was the first time I saw this student interact with curriculum. And I had been working with him for, I don't know, five years before and never saw him answer questions. or So I didn't think he was really getting some of that material. But then I went into yours and Mr. Clark's classroom and you guys were using news to you on the smart board. And he would go up there and answer every question right. And because all he had to do was like click on an image that matched the story they just read that had like pecs. And for people who aren't familiar, where they use symbols or like caricatures that are sort of universal in our world in special education, where it helps to give a picture to words or a word. And that way, students, if they can't read or they're not really great with language, they can really connect to the picture. This kid could go up to the board and press a button and it would read the question to him. And then it would have those pictures representing the different options for the answer. And he would click on the right answer like 99% of the time. And I realized he's listening. I still get to see him do that. And he's doing it 100% of the time. He's so good, right? (laughs) It's amazing. But our other student, our student on the spectrum that's very low, doesn't really talk a whole lot. He can do it too. And we have a student who's cognitively really low and in a wheelchair and with assistance to support her arm so that she can use something to touch the screen. She'll interact with it too. It's amazing. And I think a lot of times people who don't work with this population of students don't realize that their skills are actually, you know, surprising. And also one thing to add that that news to you feature has is the stick symbol prime. So what stick symbol prime is, is these icons that you mentioned, Holly, you can look up any icon, you know, between muffins to Taylor Swift, and there's an icon for it. And what (laughs) I do is I use those icons to produce my own materials. So I'm making behavioral charts. I'm making, you know, those templates that I talked about for job resumes. I do the zones of regulation with my class, but I kind of tweak the way that zones of regulation was meant to, what the normal purpose was for that when you look at that. But I've made charts that go along with that. Stick Symbol Prime is awesome because you can create so many different things and tailor it to so many different students and every student is involved. The student that you talked about who is, you know, low, doesn't, you know, have verbal output. I have a student just like him in my new district. I now have this student speaking full sentences. I just have to do the simple thing of I (laughs) want, and then they figured out the rest. And their parents are just over the moon because before they got to me, they were saying one word sentences, maybe two words. And now we're getting three, four And I'm at the point where I'll just look at them, sit for, you know, five, 30 seconds. And I know they're waiting for me to prompt, but I'm all about getting off prompt dependency and we're almost there. That's awesome. I know that makes Shannon happy. (laughs) It does make me happy. I love to hear that. 
Tell us a little bit, now that you have worked in multiple districts and we've all worked in settings that we didn't see coming, thanks to COVID, <laughs> tell me a little bit about what you think from your area of expertise, the value of inclusion is for your students, but also for general population. Okay, so my opinion on inclusion is that it needs to be purposeful. That is the biggest word I can say is purposeful inclusion. It needs to be a mix of models that are working all over the U.S., all over the world. So for me, it needs to be center-based, but also full inclusion. And you need to have a good 50-50 split of that. So for me, I currently teach two center-based classes. I teach a math class and an ELA class. I can hit on all of my students' IEP goals in those classes. Mm -hmm. Then my students go to two other classes that are in the general education setting with all their materials adapted. I have a wonderful general education team who values what I what I do, first of all, values my paras, and they are willing to learn how to adapt. And once I you have all three of those, the inclusive piece, like piece of cake, you, you can't mess it up. So in those two classes, they're doing what their peers are doing just on their level. Then I'm also teaching an elective class this year. That is a, what I like to call a co-talk class by me. So I am the general ed theater teacher, but I'm also bringing the special ed component. So all of my life skill students are in this class, plus a whole group of general ed students. So I'm making them do everything the same, but everything is adapted for those students who need the, you know, adaptations. I think that inclusion is so meaningful for everyone. I think we're living in a world right now that is really hard to live in and people are not willing to accept other people's differences. And when they come into my theater class or just my class in general, special ed is such a love, loving and warm community and is so accepting and people are afraid of what they don't know. And so when you come into an inclusion-based or you come into an inclusion classroom, you get to see this and it opens people's eyes and it goes, oh my gosh, I never thought of this this way, or I never knew that so-and-so could do this, or wow, they're doing the same thing I am just at a different pace, or holy moly, this kid just schooled me in, you know, the rock cycle. What's up with that? Like, I, (laughs) I love that. I think that inclusion and, you know, special education education community is a step in the right direction for having a more loving and accepting world. Because like I said, that community is so loving and warm that it doesn't matter what color you are. doesn't matter your political background. It doesn't matter if you have full sleeve tattoos like I do. If you're a good person with a good heart and you want to hang out and you want to have a good time, that's a place to be. Well, and I think our gen ed students get so much out of meeting students that have physical or cognitive impairments and realizing they're people too. And it's not scary. That was such a good comment that you made that people are afraid of what they don't know. And when they don't realize that they're just people who want to interact with you and talk to you, just like everybody else on the planet, they just want to be acknowledged as a human and interacted with. I think it's so helpful for creating a world that's inclusive and not just education. And I think- For general education peers, special educators, we're just wired differently. We just are. So we adapt and we know how to fit each individual's needs. 
So when they come to us, we're not their stereotypical teacher. And I'm not trying to throw any teachers under the bus, but we're not sitting up there and just, here is the lecture notes today. Here is objective one and objective two and objective, no. <laughs> we're very, for me, I'm very out there and I'm very real and I don't lie to Animated. And, you know, I always go, everyone poops and the gen ed kids are like, Ew, that's so gross. And I was like, well, you're, you know, heartthrob on Stranger Things. Guess what? He's a human. He poops. And they're like, <laughs> yeah. And they're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe a teacher, a full grown adult just said every, and you know, my students are with me all the time. are like, what? Everyone poops. It's not a big deal. Get over yourself. And they just go back to like their brains just like freak out. Like, oh my gosh, this teacher is crazy, but they love it because I don't feel like Jenna teachers talk to kids like that and they eat it up. I'm just, I'm so real because I have to be in our special education world. It is black and white and yeah, there's gray, but we don't really have a lot of time for gray. It's black or white. Well, and I think it's so important that we understand as educators, we're taking tiny humans and turning them into hopefully successful adults. And if we don't get all students whether they're cognitively typical or if they're, you know, have unique needs, if we don't get them all together and working together and honoring each other, no matter religion, race, creed, skill level, if we don't do that in education, where are they going to learn that? And what's going to happen when they're adults running the world, right? Yeah. I have so many parents, especially my theater parents that come up to me and they're like, how can I get my student in your life skills class? Like, <laughs> Is this an elect? I was like, well, <laughs> IEP based. And they're like, every kid needs your class. How do we make this a thing? Maybe. I agree. Every kid would benefit from your style of teaching and even the life skills class. Like it's real world stuff. Yeah. Kids need more of that. Yeah. Well, and Shannon, tell people some of the things that we focus on in life skills. And Amber, you can add to this. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So for me, when I go into life skills, it's mostly communication, engaging with somebody else. And that looks different depending on the kid. Like you said, Amber, some of them are using devices and things like that. Some of them use pictures, some of them use symbols, any way at all. And so it's engagement that I'm looking for most and then some language skills. But yeah, communication is probably my number one that I focus on one because I just feel like my population there, you know, the low guy in the totem pole and it's, oh, I can't understand you. You don't have verbal output. Like I'm going to shove you to the side. And for me, I don't play that game. Whatever way you communicate, your voice will be heard. And what you have to say to me is important. I always tell my students that when I can't understand, like, let's use this or let's use this. What you have to say is important to me. Also in life skills, I have my, I'm a middle school teacher right now. I have my sixth, seventh, and eighth graders doing dollar up and intro to budgeting. I'm actually planning a Taco Bell trip right now where they're going to get a set amount of money and they have to go, okay, I'm going to order the beefy Crunchwrap Supreme and this, this, (laughs) and this, but it's $13 and they only have 10. Like we're doing that now. So when they get to high school, they can focus on, you know, because I was a high school teacher for so long, they can, they have those tools to get them started. And once they're in high school, it keeps pushing, but we'll do things like that. We do a lot of handwriting, which I didn't realize this, but I guess in the other classrooms, handwriting is not really focused on so much. Oh, it's, it's an art that's getting lost. I, yeah. I'm in a new district 
than I was before. But in all the districts I've been in, it had always been a thing. And now it's not so much a thing. People are using technology and losing the art of handwriting. Mm -hmm. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Informational text, that's another one. Being able to read recipes, directions, manuals, things that you don't necessarily think of when you're in a, you know, eighth grade math class. Like these are important things. Cause I, funny, funny story. I was teaching map skills. So your cardinal directions, north, south, west, east. We're going over on the board and there's a map and I'm on boom cards, shout out to boom cards. <laughs> and I'm like, here's the library. What is north of the library? And, you know, my students come up and they're like, all right, here's the library. North is up. And then they, and the peer influence goes, oh my God, I, I don't remember learning this. That was, that was crazy. And I was like, wait, what? And I was like, you know, north. She's like, yeah, I know it, north, east, southwest, but to look at a map and I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> like, whew, yeah, so we do a lot of good things that everyone needs to know. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. And I think when we were talking about how kids were using different ways to communicate, circle back around on that and tell me after COVID, after being quarantined, and then the next year where a lot of students health-wise, because they were so susceptible to getting sick, they had to stay home, even though we were bringing some kids in, some kids had to opt to stay home just for health reasons. Talk about the impact to their communication, because I know even families sometimes struggle, like, I don't know, a lot of moms and dads too, and even siblings become interpreters for the student who struggles talking because they get really good at understanding what they mean. So they jump in for time's sake and interpret. And these kids don't get somebody waiting for them to really come up with a, and that can be so impactful. So whether it was virtual or just not being in the community or just not having people there to say what you have to say is important to me, I'm gonna listen and wait for you or give them the tools they need to communicate. I can imagine that that was a big impact. Yeah, it was huge. The year that we were at the same district, we had a student who was talking a lot for this student. But when we came back, it was, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up, thumbs down, where before it was like, no, yes. And would say this person, this individual would say things they wanted. And it was so sad to see that because we worked so hard on that verbal output that we know is there. But like you said, for, you know, time's sake, I, I totally get it. But it was just that thumbs up, thumbs down. And it was super sad. And even moving to this district I did last year, and now this is my second year there, I had, you know, a group of kiddos that were very, they had the verbal output, but very hard to understand. But now that I've been with them for two years now, and my big thing is the 30 second rule. I will preach the 30 second rule to anyone. And if you don't know what the 30 second rule is, Tell us. You, know, you, <laughs> you give a command. So, you know, stand up. The student with the cognitive disability has 10 seconds to process what you just said. So sit up. So, okay. 10 seconds. They just said, sit up. Now they have 20 seconds to initiate what you just said. And that everyone needs to remember. I think with everyone, like even me, especially if I'm caught off guard and someone says something to me, I'm like, uh, 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 like what? <laughs> but that 
was the beauty of, like I said, coming in this year and last year, once I started working on that with these students, because they lost those, you know, social skills, giving that time to process, giving that time of what is she asking me, you know, even my staff that the paraprofessionals I have now that are amazing, I've taught that to them. And we're seeing like full-blown sentences and more of the, okay, wait, let them process this because you're saying a lot of words and really all you want them to do is sit up. Because if you go, can you please sit up? That's five words that they have to decode. Five. And for someone with a disability, that can be really hard. Yeah, and Shannon can totally speak to that. Their processing time is a key component. It is. <laughs> we waited that long for that. Brilliant. Just for that. That's all you're doing. <laughs> Tell us more, Shannon. No, I love the 30 second rule. That is a really great kind of rule of thumb. And then I think even you, you might even have to extend it for some students. And then, and if you want a response, it could be even longer than that. So it all depends on the student. And I, that's one of the great things I love about you, Amber, is that you tailor everything to each student and it's, you know, you, you learn quickly what they need and that kind of stuff. So but yes, definitely the 30 second rule is a good rule to follow. Thank you. Because I have my one, I have like slogans and mannerisms. My team makes fun of me all the time. But <laughs> one of my slogans I always say, because I do a lot of, do you agree or do you disagree? Like when we're all doing class discussions and I always go, okay, my favorite color is black, but Amber two, I work with three Ambers in my department. It's hilarious, <laughs> but Amber two she likes pink. I go, Amber too. Do we disagree? Yeah. Can we still be friends? Absolutely. I go, why is that? And then she says my mannerism because everyone's brain's different and we all think differently. Like, like that's my mantra. Like everything has to be individualized because it would be such a lame world if every one of us had to wear pink every day. I know personally <laughs> I would hate it. So <laughs> I'm Nothing like against me. Girl myself. So well, and I think I don't know if any of you saw the new Prime Minister of Italy. She was giving a speech where she was talking about how I am not a number. I am not just a consumer. I am a person and I have my own opinions and my own likes and dislikes and my own belief systems and all of these things. And we're getting in a place with technology where in the world. There are plenty of people who want us to just be a number or a cog in a wheel, and we are not. And that is the beauty of humanity. And I think when we're talking nationwide about increasing universal design and increasing inclusion in a meaningful way, and hopefully we're hoping that next season we're going to do a whole lot of talking about inclusion and how to make that really work, because I think it is a hot topic. And we have a lot to say about that because all three of us are people who do that on the daily trying to work. And I know gen ed teachers have a lot of concern that it will be so hard and laborious and they won't be able to do it. And I think those of us who are in special ed can help them see past that because we do it all the time and we can really show them quick and easy ways. And like you said, shout out to text help for read and write for Google, RyQ, Equatio, and all those tools that they have. Because those are tools where you just need one tool to do like 40 different things and it creates, you know, universal design or differentiation easy for teachers where they don't have to do a lot of work. 
And I think we miss that sometimes and we skip over the thought of inclusion because we think it's going to be really hard. But at the end of the day, our world needs to be inclusive, right? We have to embody everybody and we have to find a way to get along. And I think some of that's been lost. And that social emotional component during COVID of people not engaging, we have to learn that whether my favorite color is purple and yours is black, we can still get along. That's true if we have different political beliefs. It's true if we have different religious beliefs. It's true if our cultural differences are there. I think it's part of, like you said, what makes this world beautiful. And in education, we need to be supporting kids and gaining those skills, how to agree to disagree and still get along. Yeah. That's everything I do. And you nailed it. That's everything I do in my classroom. My kids will tell you, but they were like black and they were like pink and they're still friends. You need to be nice to each other. I love when my students call out other students or other teachers. It's brilliant. Like I have a student that does that now. It's like, you're not being very nice. You can agree with him and it's okay. Or you can disagree. And I just sit back and go <laughs> like, what a great way though, to introduce that idea on their level where they are right now, like as simple as colors, my favorite color, your favorite color. Like that's going to transition into exactly what Holly said. Like, oh, you have different religion, religious belief than I do. That's okay. We can still agree to disagree. It's just the beginning of that. And it's such a perfect way to do it. And to go back what you said about the gen ed, you know, general education teachers, it's going to be so hard. It goes back to what I said. They're just afraid of what they don't know and what they haven't been taught. Like I've talked to so many general education teachers and I'm, you know, did you have a special education course? Yeah, it was, you know, one half semester and it listed like five different disabilities. And I'm like, only five? Like really? <laughs> and I was like, okay, what else to talk about? The IEP plans, 504s, BIPs. And they're like, I know what an IEP is. And I'm like, okay, so we are at base zero. Um, <laughs> so they really don't know. They're not given the tools. And when you give, like, I had a great experience last year. I had this new teacher who wanted to adapt and noticed that I have a big caseload and I have a lot going on, which I appreciate that when people see that. And he came up and was like, how do you make these click and drags? And I took all 30 minutes and he started using those in his classroom. And now he's just like, oh my gosh, this is so easy. I wish I would have known this sooner. Like everyone can use this, not just your students on your caseload, but all, I have this kid A and B that could use this. Absolutely. Those of you listening to the podcast now, this recording is taking place before we released everything. And so by the time you're hearing this podcast, our website, e2now.com is up and running. We have a blog for this podcast that you can go and tell us what you think and give us feedback, give us your stories. We also, that website's going to be growing and adding a lot of different tools. Miss Amber is going to put some of the things that she has created up on this website that people can purchase just like you would at Teachers Pay Teachers. And we will have different resources like that on our website for other special education teachers, but also for families or people who would do respite care with students, anybody, gen ed teachers, if they want to pull some adaptive curriculum in for their student or get ideas what that looks like, visit the website e2now.com. Next week, we're going to be talking with other people about things that really help engage those students 
that have unique needs and limitations with their skill level. So that's going to be awesome. I really hope that we get our rep from news to you to come on and, and give a little two cents about their program because it's pretty amazing. Yay! To you people, all my love because that program is like chef's kiss. Like, I love it. Well, you need to go and check out... <laughs> Now write this down when I tell it to you because it's an amazing site and it's one of my new favorite platforms for building inclusive materials. It's called Genially. It's G-E-N-I-A-L dot L-Y. And they have a free option that you can make presentations. You can make 360 um, images that have like hot spots in them. You can make games and they're all templates that you can just adjust and they're amazing. Shannon and I used a bunch of those last year. Um, so cool. So cool. I'm I geek out on it. <laughs> Especially if you have like training videos, that is one thing that helped me through COVID was Holly's training videos. And yes, <laughs> I know everyone's like, oh yeah, I watched the PD video from Holly. No, I watched that <laughs> from Holly and I made some really kick you know what stuff hey, a good training video is always fun no, I <laughs> and screencastify is great for making those um yeah screenflow there's a bunch of cool op or yeah you can do all kinds of things or we're using zoom you can also use zoom to make a video yeah lots of options out there all right, Shannon's been really quiet tonight, and I would like to tell the audience out in podcast land that we're recording this on a Sunday evening, and we're all a little tired. <laughs> but you the get together when you can get together. <laughs> I feel like one of the things that there are so many people out in the world who have a student who have unique needs, whether they're minor as far as they're able to be in full gen ed classes, or they're more significant and they really need to have a lot of support. Maybe they have an EA, like an educational assistant or a paraprofessional with them all day. So there's a wide scope of kids who have disabilities and struggle with challenges in the in the school. And I think that is a population that during COVID, a lot of people weren't thinking about. And so many of those families didn't have a clue how to get help or what to do. And it breaks my heart to say a lot of them just didn't engage during that time. Yeah, I agree 100%. But both of our interviewees today had great strategies that worked for a number of students. It sounded, you know, Sherry had some neighbors and others that she brought in, was able to engage them that way. Yeah, it's really impressive what people thought of. And thinking about our episode last week, when we were talking with Therese Moore about engaging families and really coupling with families to get good supports for students and what Sherry was talking about. That's exactly what she did as a family. She reached out to other families and created something that worked for them. And I think we need to see more of that. We need to see more of families participating and giving us ideas for how we create solutions for students. Yeah, it's again, it's the common theme that all of our episodes have had relationship building between right? everybody, everybody. And I think it's an amazing thing to really have a focus on inclusion, because we live in a world where there's all kinds of people and we need to be comfortable working with and partnering with people that have different beliefs and different cultures and different skill levels. And so I love it. I do too. Because of our motto, 
it works so well. Yes. Together, Together, we we can can do do better. better. All right, guys, come back next week. We are going to be talking with a very cool group of people, an elementary, a middle, and a high school and across the district group of people who work with students who have either mental health issues and or behavioral issues that have really been struggling post-COVID with some of those social emotional issues of simple things, even just classroom behavior, like how to act and be appropriate in a classroom. And it's a very cool interview. We're going to talk to all three of them at once. It's a party. It was fun. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. So you guys get back here next week. You don't want to miss it. Bye.